Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premier manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good. Uh, you remember that time that we were about to podcast and I hid the last Red Bull from myself so that I would have it for the podcast and then I couldn't find it? Was that today? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I'm, that, new to, no, I'm new I found to this it. story. <laughs> I, no, I, f- I found it. But we were just talking about how you were tired, dude. You got to step into the uh, liquid meth game. Oh, my God, man. I, I Okay, this weekend I was... Staying up. I mean, I normally go to bed at nine o'clock, and I was staying up to like two thirty in the morning mixing, and I was drinking like five or six cups of coffee. Usually, one is enough for me to be wired because I don't drink coffee. So I'm running rough. It sucks. I I'm on the um the espresso game, man. I got yeah. a a machine. It's called a Jura, and you just put beans into it and water, and then it uh, it, does it does the rest. Yeah, it does the rest. So. It comes really out great. like Starbucks and mixes whipped cream and shit in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not coffee. That's cake. Yeah, that's cake. Yeah, All right, well, I, whatever. I drink tea, so fuck <laughs> you guys. Well, do you, does your tea have caffeine? Uh, yeah, but, you know, there's a way to dip the bag for 15 seconds and discard the water if you don't want the caffeine. So, you know, you can do it both ways. What's the point if you're not going to get the caffeine, though? Antioxidants, taste, flavor, aroma, warm and tingling sensation on your face. I don't know. <laughs> I, still, I, I still don't. I still don't hear what the point is. Besides, the, besides the warm tingling sensation on my face, I don't. Al is very much a consumer. He just he takes stuff and wants the reaction from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, there's a few things. Like, I don't like the taste of alcohol. And I don't drink very often, but I always preferred liquor over beer, like back when I was touring. And Hey, young. we can't be friends anymore. I can't drink hard liquor. I'm sorry. Well, I just figure what's the point of getting full and tired when you're trying to get drunk? So yeah. like, <laughs> well, may as well drink some liquor. Here's the deal. It works. I'll explain it to you like this. I hated beer too until I went to college, but... In Wisconsin, we drink beer different than the rest of the world drinks beer. See, the rest of the world, they everybody like sips it and they enjoy it over like a half an hour. Wisconsin, we're like, fuck that. We shotgun. So we get the beer and then it, you look over at us a minute <clears throat> later and it's already gone. And they're like, what happened to the beer? And you're already on your third one. So we just get it done. So we treat beer like it's liquor here. But that's just <laughs> like the culture of drinking that we have. Yeah, but I feel like having to take eight of those bottles or cans worth where you could just have like four or five shots and be good and not be like weighed down. I don't know. Makes well, it I feel, agree makes with it that. feel bloaty. It's, it's more of like a tradition. Like I just grew up that way doing it, meaning like once I hit that age and I don't know. Okay. Here's the, the deal. My first time drinking hard liquor when I was like 16, I had like nine double shots of brandy and I had, I peaked like 87 times. I came well, home. Yeah. My old man was like, oh yeah, boy, you'll learn. I'm like, damn it. This sucks. And he's like, yeah, you got rotten gut. <laughs> and I hung over the toilet all day. So I can't drink liquor after that, that, that ruined liquor for me for my entire life. So now I have to substitute and I've turned into a wino. Yeah, so I, I had my a, wine. a similar experience as well, man, when I was like 15 or whatever. And I got drunk off beer for the first time it made me like really nauseous and 
uh, I remember like I was laying in this, I was at this dude's house and it was a party, you know, and I was kind of laying in his bed and uh, someone in another room kept yelling the word cheesecake for some reason. <laughs> cheesecake. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know why. And every time I heard them say cheesecake, it made me want to throw up. Ugh. And they just kept doing it over and over. And then that that was enough to scar me for about 10 years. So I pretty much, <laughs> I wouldn't drink from from 15 to like 26 or 27, I think it was. And then finally I cracked. And That's how I feel about Robitussin and cough syrup. Robitussin. If you're getting drunk off Robitussin, man. Man, that stuff used to make you trip. That's like, like 12-year-old shit. Well, it was a long time ago uh, when I drank it. To, <laughs> well, that's the that's the scissor or whatever now, right? Um, maybe. But that's what they do. They take, uh, I don't know if it's Robitussin, but it's some kind of cough syrup mixed with some kind of alcohol and that's that's like the the scissor that everybody drinks gets fucked up on. Oh, oh, that's like from what I understand that's like liquid painkillers that they mix with like Sprite. Oh, okay. But like uh Robitussin used to have this property to it that if you drank enough it would make you trip, but I mean you had to drink like two bottles of that shit. Oh, and, God. <laughs> two oh, bottles so, of so, uh, I mean, you would really trip, though. It wasn't a joke. Like, it was it was definitely legit as far as that goes. However, oh, so disgusting. And so, you know, it's been years and years and years and years since I ever considered doing something like that. But I will never drink cough syrup again. I just can't. Like, it fucking grosses me out. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want, if you want, Want to uh, be able to treat your sore throat with cough syrup? Don't do drugs. <laughs> so, speaking speaking of which, somebody that I don't think does drugs, but uh, whose records sound really amazing. How's that for a? Uh, That's a great transition. Great, great transition. Yeah, um, I thought it was got, drug month. <laughs> it said it's guitar month. The same thing. Uh, well, we've got Kurt Ballou with us today, who is one of my production and guitar heroes and i say guitar because you know lots of dudes are into the the shredder guys but i always loved what he did just in terms of bringing intensity and noise you know like art artful cool noise to the table as a guitarist and then, absolutely yeah. yeah like it was like when i first heard converge back in the day it was like how is this possibly so like brutally just pissed yeah <laughs> he does it's funny too because uh i think you know once we bring him on the air here and the listeners get a chance to to hear him speak like he's definitely not an abrasive or aggressive person at all no not at all which is crazy you know is considering the kind of music that he's really into and so i think it'll be interesting i also considering his production ideals it's funny i met him last year at nam and i was expecting to meet like a real elitist, like abrasive kind of dude. And he turned out to be like one of the nicest, most thoughtful guys I've met in music. It's it's interesting how that works. Maybe he gets it out in the music and then he's just chill the rest of the time. Yeah. Or there's just, you know, it is an art at the end of the day. I mean, I think some people kind of want to put punk music or even like aggressive music in his category of people who are really angry and mad and have all these emotions they need to get out. But at the end of the day, too, there's there's still an art form to it. I feel like that a lot of the time, while it may be 
Sorry, I heard you cut out, I guess. We lost somebody, I think. We're good. <laughs> We're good? Okay, okay. there we are. Uh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I missed whatever you said, but I'm sure it was brilliant. You Let's still just, there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't say anything. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. All right, let's just bring Kurt on, and uh, we'll we'll kiss his ass to his face instead of <laughs> <laughs> instead of behind his back. Awesome. Hey, how you doing, Kurt? Great. How are you guys? Not bad. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we were just actually kissing your ass a little bit um, before we brought you on. And, nice. Uh, I like it. <laughs> I guess we decided. I guess we decided to kiss your ass to your face now. Yeah, uh, sweet. Well, I talk behind had, your we back. We had to sack up a little bit first. <laughs> That's fine. So let's start with uh, your story a little bit and tell us how you got into this. Because from what I understand, you're actually a biomedical engineer, and I don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh, um. Well, I mean, I've 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 played in. Actually, my band Converge, we've been going since I was in high school, and I'm 41 now. So, you know, I've been playing this kind of music for a long time, and, um, you know, the kind of music that we play, there's a bit of a market for it now, but when we started, I mean, aside from being a much worse band, there was just, like, really no market for our kind of music at all. So anything that we wanted to do, we had to do ourselves. So I kind of took an interest in like four tracking pretty early on. And, um, you know, we put out all our own records early on and booked our own shows and, you know, did everything DIY, not out of the desire to be at, be DIY, but because we had to be, because there was just nobody interested in helping us. You know, and eventually we got like a little bit of money together to go into some recording studios and, and start making records. But I, I always felt like really frustrated in the recording studio environment because it wasn't turning out the way that I wanted it to, but I also didn't have the vocabulary to articulate to the engineer what I I mean, the vision that I had for what things should sound like. So I eventually bought myself a little bit of recording equipment. I, got, I started with um, a half-inch 8-track and a few mics and a small mixing console and started just making demos, just kind of like to learn about the recording process so that I could you know, just be more educated when I went into studios to, you know, to uh, record my own band stuff. And then that just sort of snowballed and, you know, friends started asking me to record their band's demos and then later seven inches. And then, you know, eventually people I didn't know started calling based on what they had heard friends of mine uh, do in my studio, which I say studio, but it was actually my parents' garage. Um, I started in my parents' basement. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody does. Um, (laughs) And then... You know, I'm on my fourth studio now, and I've been here for about 12 years. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's just like a snowballing natural kind of thing. And it was like, um, you know, I started doing it when I was in college, and um, I was studying aerospace engineering in college. And when I graduated, I ended up getting a job basically doing mechanical engineering at a, at a biomedical company and um, stuff that we worked so on. So you're work. an actual smart person. I mean, that's debatable, but um, I worked <laughs> in a... I mean, okay, so I have a degree in aerospace engineering, which one could argue that I'm a rocket scientist, but... Um, <laughs> wow. Well, well here's I the mean, deal. Like, but, we need a private you're, you're jet made for us. If, no. I actually, my, uh, like... One of my senior projects was to uh, to build like a an RC plane, not like from a kit, but from scratch, like design the airfoils and all that stuff. It didn't fly so good, so you probably don't want me doing that for you. <laughs> I think I'm better at making records, but yeah. But anyway, so I, I worked. I got a job um, doing mechanical engineering for this biomed company, and um, 
you know, it was it was the first time in my life that I had any money in my pocket. So, you know, that stuff just all went into my studio that I was moonlighting at. And then um, eventually I was laid off from that company and got a really nice severance package. And that was like the kick in the ass I needed to to start doing music full time. But, yeah, I never set out to do this stuff full time. It was just uh, a, a love of mine that, you know, f- fortunately snowballed into a career and I, you know I wish I had had some formal training I had never like interned with anybody or assisted anybody else and so I think I learned pretty slowly and that's a blessing and a curse because um, I think I developed my own style because of it but I also um, learned slowly you have an interesting approach to how you work or, or how you decide to work with bands is that right like from what I understand you know you believe if the artist isn't going to play it properly you shouldn't be recording it. Yes and no. I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of malleable. I, I believe that there's a lot of different aesthetics and ethics um, involved in in music. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I want to go to work and be excited about what I'm doing and and have fun doing what I do all day, as I'm sure everybody does. And you know, for that means different things for different people. I don't really, I'm not really philosophically opposed to any production technique, but for me, I, I enjoy, you know, making, you know, what I guess what I consider real, real music, real players, real instruments, um, things. I like recording live if possible. Unfortunately, my studio is not really set up for a lot of live tracking. Um, I've done albums where I followed the band on towards, sat on stage next to them while they played, and then their live performances became the album. You know, things like that are, are really fun for me and exciting. This sort of Im- the immediacy of that type of thing. You can only pull that off if the band is good, right? I mean, yeah, you can't for sure. just do, you can't just do that with anybody. For sure. Well, let me let me just take a step. I'll address that in a second. Let me just take one step back and just say, you know, I think I'm like a few years older than than you guys. So I I come from like the last generation of people who were raised recording on tape. So for me, like a lot of like the modern things that are done in order to, you know, make pristine records just weren't possible back then so i was i was raised with a certain kind of aesthetic that is didn't used to be a choice but now is a choice um so that's that's part of my difference and and also i was i got my start recording on four tracks so you know when you when you only have four tracks you really have to commit to things you have to record things simultaneously you have to either mic the drums with one mic or you have to mic the drums with a bunch of mics and then mix them together down to one or two tracks you know you're not going to like multi-mic a guitar amp on a four track and then keep the various mics on separate tracks so you can make decisions later so like my my whole like education in recording was about making decisions in the moment and then sticking with those decisions sort of like life you know you know you come to a crossroads in life like where am i gonna have dinner and then you decide you're gonna go to this place and then you meet a girl there and you end up getting married you know but if if you could (laughs) you know whatever like you could have just as easily decided to go eat dinner someplace else and then you could have met somebody else and then ended up dead or who knows well, um, <laughs> well, one of the things we always preach is uh right now you know we have so many tools available which give us so many options to do different things to our to our music and our audio and uh, one of the things that i got into was you know analysis paralysis is too many too many things to be working on and too many things to be tweaking and so uh one thing that really sped up my workflow 
uh, was to co- start committing, you know, just make something sound cool and then print it to an audio file and delete the original and then just move on. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree because like um, sometimes, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to decide what your guitar overdub sound is going to be if you haven't decided on your guitar rhythm sound. And and it's yeah. tough to determine what your bass sound is going to be if you haven't determined the tempo of the song yet or, you know, so <laughs> forth and so on. You know, you, like each decision is based on what came before it. And if you leave yourself infinite variables at the end, you'll never make a decision about anything. Absolutely. So do you find that in a way your records are close to mixed before you're done? Or do they kind of mix uh, themselves as you I go mean, along? I- I'm pretty heavy-handed in mixing, but yeah, I mean the vibe. The vibe is there. there. There hasn't been too many times where other people have mixed my recordings, so it's tough for me to say like what somebody else's take on mixing my recording would be. But yeah, I mean I think that the vibe is pretty much there before mixing. Let me ask you this, because I think the idea of mixing now for our generation is kind of a new idea. I can remember when it was a little bit foreign to reamp in the mixing process and now it's almost assumed it's almost like oh yeah we'll give you the di's and the you know and the well all the way to tuning vocals and editing drums and you know consolidating edits and things like that now people think it's all mixing doing post-production making stems (laughs) when i mix a record that i didn't record i very much discourage that kind of stuff and for for several reasons number one i feel is though Remote mixing is more of a um, a technical craft than a creative craft. Sort of like a like mastering, you know. Like when you send your record off to be mastered, and the mastering engineer like drastically changes it. It's sort of it's typically off putting to the band and the and the engineer, the mix engineer. You know, it's more just like optimize this. So, and I feel like that's because the mastering engineer and in this case the mix engineer just hasn't spent nearly as much time with the songs as the tracking engineer producer band etc so they don't necessarily have quite the same vision of the artistic intent of the song without having been through Absolutely. that whole process personally i'm i'm just kind of not into reamps in general just because i feel like there's a as a guitar player there's a big interaction that happens between me and the sound that I hear coming back from the speakers as I'm recording. So I I don't like to, I mean, I I certainly, you know, track DIs once in a while and and do reamp things from time to time, but it's, uh, but I think of that as more of a safety type of thing and not as, as something I would do, you know, as a matter of course, you know, I, I I want the players to interact with their tone as they're, as they're performing um, just so they can get the ultimate performance. That's how it was designed. I think originally it was designed to be sort of like a, a safety measure or a backup plan. Yeah. Uh, where you know, whereas now it kind of became just status quo. Like yeah. you know, record I mean, it's the cool DI. If, if you're doing it with Sims, um, and then like the the mix tone is just like a slight tweak on the Sim that you were tracking with. Like I, I mean, I'm into that. But um, what I guess what I don't like is when people ask me to mix their record and they're really they're not just asking me to mix it, but they're asking me to build the entire production. I, I feel like that's a little bit out of the range that I would want to do <laughs> as a mix engineer. I wish we could live in your world, Kurt, because yeah. it's well, so opposite. No, you can. You can just you can. I, I, I mean, I try to pick and choose projects that I think will be enjoyable to work on. And, and for me, like I would that's the that would make me feel paralyzed trying to 
you know, determine for a band without them present what is their sound. I guess that's what I'm always trying to get at with the band, whether I'm recording them or mixing them, is not so much like getting them to conform to my idea of what good sound is, but um, for me to find what what it is about them that makes them unique and then help them capture it. Um, yeah. And to not be present for the guitar sound as a guitar player i i would have a tough time with that personally right do you a technical question about reamping well not that technical but do you feel like there's always something lost in yes. the tone yeah like because you know i've been playing guitar forever as well and i always have felt like there's like this I don't know, like a little bit of signal loss or something that it's just... subtle, you, but it's definitely... Yeah. Have you guys ever, like, um, just tried playing guitar out of different length cables? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, so I've, like, there's been a couple times I've plugged into guitar amps just to, like, test them with, like, a one- or two-foot cable, and I'm like, whoa, this sounds awesome! <laughs> um, yeah. Just, there's, so there's a difference just, just in that, um, but there's... Uh, Okay, okay. So you guys all play guitar, right? Yes. Well, I yeah. do. Joey, do you play guitar? Yeah, I do. I've seen oh, pictures okay. of you playing guitar. That is absolutely. This is something that AL probably just doesn't know about me, but yeah, I do. Well, okay. I, knew, I knew that you play guitar in the studio and stuff. I've seen but, him do it in person. But, but like, <laughs> I didn't know if you consider yourself a guitarist or not. Yeah, absolutely. My dad um, actually play, plays guitar and, and has f basically for his whole life. And he teaches guitar as well, and, oh, and right. so you know, I kind of learned <laughs> learn things every day. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I thought I I thought that you were like just one of those uh, dudes who is just good at music, so you could pick up the guitar and play some if you wanted to. But I didn't realize that you're like a guitarist. That's cool. Yeah. You guys yeah. are lucky to come from musical families. I, there was like very little music in my family when I was a kid. I wish I wish that I had had like more music around when I was a kid. It's one of the biggest advantages I've had in my life is, in my opinion, coming from a musical family. Absolutely. Anyway, the reason why I asked you guys if you're guitar players is I wanted to ask if you feel like you can judge a guitar tone better when you're playing it or when you're listening to somebody else play it. For me, I like to take the uh, more objective approach, which is to do it after the fact because i i do always feel like if you're sitting down or well you don't have to be sitting down if you're playing the instrument um and you're in the moment everything feels like it's right you know everything feels like it's going good and then you listen back to it and you're like oh that wasn't so good i kind of messed up this part and i didn't huh. i don't necessarily that. mean about performance i mean about like a tone well even the tone like i i can imagine you know, the, the other thing that you hear, depending on how loud you're listening to the tone, is, is the sound of the pick, like hitting the strings, and that actually adds to the transient of the tone. And yeah. then when you hear the tone back, like, that's not there anymore because that was happening in the room and not through the guitar cable and just various things. So I, I think, like, there's definitely two feelings. You know, you have the one feeling, which is what it sounds like while you're playing, and the other feeling, which is what it sounds like when it's played back. And I like to judge from the one that's being played back because ultimately that's what other people are going to hear. I feel the exact same way. I've noticed that there's been lots of times that I fake myself out because I got into the sound in the room while I was playing. And like he said, the pick attack, especially when tracking bass, I've faked myself out the most 
um, because the pick attack is so loud that I think that that's part of the tone and it's cutting and awesome. And then I hear it back and it's not nearly as cool as I thought. So that's definitely happened to me quite a bit. Are you the opposite? I, I mean, I think it's important to have both, um, but I feel as though I can track down a problem faster when I'm playing like something where like, you know, sometimes you're getting a guitar tone with somebody, they're playing guitar and you can tell they're not totally feeling it. Like sometimes for me, I can just grab the guitar and play for a second and be like, Oh yeah, obviously it's because there's like not enough mids or there's like something something screwy and there's some latency or, you know, something, something you wouldn't notice as an engineer that all of a sudden, as soon as you're playing the guitar, you're like, Oh, okay. There's not enough gain or like there's too much like woof coming off this guitar. We need to throw an EQ pedal in the chain just to tighten it up or something like that. I feel like I can I can sort through the problems a lot more quickly absolutely. when I play it. Yeah, from a- that perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, so that's sort of going back to your earlier question about can I hear a difference with reamps? And I'll usually my very first step when a band says like, hey, here's our, you know, here's our DIs and make some reamps for us like i'll go out into my live room and i'll get a guitar and um and i'll try to pick kind of like a you know like a middle of the road guitar and then like line up a bunch of amps and maybe track three or four different amps simultaneously so i have some options and i'll get them sounding good playing them in the room and then like and then i run the di into them and then i'm like oh this doesn't sound good and then i'll sometimes it's just because it didn't sound good to begin with and I couldn't tell because I was playing it but also a lot of times it's because there's something lost in that sound I mean maybe you know maybe it's just all the cabling maybe it's the additional circuitry maybe they used a terrible DI maybe it wasn't a very good sounding guitar to begin with but yeah it's it never sounds the same to me although it is nice especially with bass to have the option to like put like a multi-band compressor on it or something like that before it gets to the amp. So you actually use bass amps. <laughs> That's a real so weird qu- that like yeah. just recording <laughs> real instruments is weird for you guys. Well, no, no. it's That's <laughs> not, not weird me. for us. It's weird <laughs> for the, the common, like the state of the game has just been changed yeah, you know for our generation. Actually, I, I, have, I think I have something to say about that um, that's kind of interesting like so there's a lot of people that are like my age that sort of grew up recording on tape that are you know really like sort of raise their noses to the idea of tracking with amp sims and and drum replacement and drum programming and all that kind of stuff but like there was a parallel that happened a few years ago like i don't i'm sure you guys probably read tape op right yeah yeah, so yeah, for back years. in the early days of tape pop, you know, it's 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 primarily been like an indie focused or you know all, all you know underground music focused magazine, and the people that read it and created the, the magazine, you could tell were very diehard analog. You know, they loved Steve, Steve Albini and all like the you know also all the, the classic seventies recording engineers, the Glenn Johns and stuff like that, and they you know they loved they worshipped all that kind of stuff, but then. There's also this indie, there's an indie aesthetic for analog, but there's also an indie ethic for DIY. And then, so at a certain point, they started to like really embrace and then later prefer digital recording because of how DIY it enabled you to be and how mobile it enabled you to be. And I think that the same thing is happening now that virtual instruments have gotten so much better. And I can really get behind that because the idea, 
you know, the whole reason I started recording in the very beginning was to be more DIY. It was like the more you can kind of take control of the creation of your own music, the more invested in it you'll you'll be. And like, you know, how can you possibly be more invested than by having a setup that's portable or, you know, sort of self-contained that you can do everything yourself. You're not dependent on, you know, a recording studio or, you know, booking time with, you know, somebody else or anything like that. You can, you can do everything yourself now because all those tools are contained within an environment that you can control. And that's like the ultimate in DIY. So from that perspective, I'm like super in favor of all this virtual instrument stuff, but I still totally hate using them. <laughs> for, for me, but I'm totally, uh, I have great admiration for people that are able to use those tools um, really well. And um, I think it is the future, and I'm learning more and more about that stuff all the time. Well, I would always rather prefer to record a real instrument. I just found myself recording in a genre where the the playing has to be so technically on that almost yeah. nobody can actually do it. I think that that sort of genre is also extremely competitive whereas like in you know in indie worlds or you know hardcore or noise rock whatever the kind of shit that I usually do like people I think are a little bit more concerned about their records being unique and I think that in the sort of slicker metal world people are they're just they seem to be very competitive with each other with like you're correct you know my record's the loudest my my drummer can like do double bass at 320 bpm or you know my drummer can do it at 325 or you know whatever it's like <laughs> i wish more bands wanted an original sound because i mix a lot of records kurt and i'll tell you that like it's, it's my primary focus and so many times bands come back and they're like they'll reference the same four or five records that I had mixed and be like, we want it to sound just like this. And you're like, why? You guys are a different band. And they're like, well, dude, that's the sound. That's what we want. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I don't have a problem doing it. It's money and I'm having fun. But at the same time, I kind of, part of me always really wants to sit down and just like make that sound with that band and do something unique and fresh. Have you guys ever tried to actually like duplicate the sound of a record that you've yeah, done? Yeah, it never works. <laughs> It's, it's so bad. Yeah, it never, ever really worked. At least for me, it's never worked out. No. What do you think, Joey? Good. I think... Uh, well, I got to I got to go to uh, NRG once when Jay Baumgartner was working with a band. And um, I, I love to tell the story. It's really cool. So I was in room A doing vocals or something. And then he was in room C or B, I think. And he was recording a full band. But I didn't know this. So we were on break, uh, we were like on a food break, and I'm just walking around the studio because there's tons of awesome stuff in there, just looking around. And uh, I hear some music coming out of this room, and so I, I kind of just wandered over there to see what was going on. And there was basically about three or four people in a control room who were all sitting in different chairs, just kind of looking at the ground and listening to the music, and it sounded great. And uh, I walk in there and I listen to the song and I wait till the song is is well the song is going along and and all of a sudden I hear sort of a mistake and I was like oh that was I wonder if anyone knows that that mistake is in there <laughs> and then all of a sudden the the music kind of starts to crumble and just stops and I look over and I look through the glass and there was a band in there playing 
And I thought that everyone was listening to a CD. Like I had no clue that there was a full live band playing this song, like in the in the live room. Um, because you know the way the windows were, you could, it was kind of dark. You couldn't see. Yeah. But as soon as I looked over there, I was like, "Oh, wow!" <laughs> and the, that experience for me, I'll, I'll never forget that because I had never heard something like that in real life. So like, the, mon- the monitor mix was just that good. Yeah, the monitor mix was like literally you could put that on a CD and ship it. It was it was it sounded great. At least in that room. I mean, I don't know what they got going on over there, but uh, it, it was awesome. And uh, you know, I think yeah. we all there's there's a lot of people that are getting into this that don't know that they don't know about that. It's really a joy when you're in a studio and you have players who can who can just kill it, and yeah. you get to and could, because. You have such a great perspective on all of the tones of of every individual instrument when you hear it all in context with with each other. Um, yeah. you know, it's almost like you can actually do your job when when they <laughs> you know when they can actually play and sound great on your instruments. Yeah. It's like your mind is free to actually produce an engineer. Yeah. What a concept! Hey? Gr- granted, you can't be as like meticulous about any of the performances or about the tone, but you don't. You almost don't care because you're so excited to be hearing the performance that you're not really focused on the sounds. I actually. Um, the earlier this year, I was recording High on Fire, and they—they're um, the kind of band that that aren't quite done writing songs when they enter a studio. So there's always a bit of a bit of pre-production, and um, I had them, you know, all set up, tracking live, and I was really pushing for them to to track this um, this record live because it was sounding great. Just the three of them playing together in the live room, and like my studio doesn't really have much in the way of ISO booths, so it was just like. I mean, I had a couple gobos set up, but I mean, the amps were like six feet from the drums, and everything's just blasted in the live room, and it sounded awesome. That's, but that's the kind of band you would expect that on uh, the kinds of yeah. bands. And I mean, I don't work on the same kind of stuff that Joey and Joel work on, but I feel like the kind of bands, the thing that's in common between what we all do, me, Joey, and Joel, is that those bands playing live in the studio probably wouldn't work out but i've toured with high on fire and i can totally see how that would make sense yeah it's almost hard to get that band to track one person at a time although they're accustomed to doing it now but like yeah matt hates headphones he just wants to like have an amp blaring in his face and and that makes him happy yeah if you're recording high on fire the thing is to capture whatever brings the best out of him because there really is only one matt out there yeah, it's like I almost like don't want to double track his guitars because like he can't like he literally cannot touch the guitar without doing at least like a quarter tone vibrato on every single note he hits, including chords. So just like doubling rhythm tracks is like <laughs> sounds like super chorused and wobbly. So you you almost yeah you almost like don't even want to double track them. There's a lot of times on the record where there's like leads or we just have no rhythm guitar- guitars under it and they're either doubled leads or they're like pseudo pseudo doubled leads yeah technical question how would you get around doubling him uh, and still get a huge sound that's modern i guess i mean relatively modern sounding yeah i mean they're definitely not super modern sounding records but uh i mean there's all kinds of tricks you know rim mics panned um sometimes like you know, you delay and slightly detune the sound and, and pan one to the other side. Sometimes it's just like 
mono guitar. And I, you know, I try to I try to do different tricks. Sometimes he he doubles himself, and he'll it'll be like the the Iomi thing where it's like it's kind of doubled but kind of not. Where yeah. like he hits the important things, but then there's some like in between things that diverge, and that just sort of adds to the kind of like swirly swirliness of a uh, of a doubled lead. Gotcha. Well, you know, there's uh, there's interesting like thing that happens like, like for example Jack White you know I think the fans of that music kind of expect it to sound a certain way you know with the fact that it's just two people and just one guitar and like drums and, and of course they kind of yeah. get a little they get kind of fancy on their productions from time to time but like there is an expectation of what it should be and it's interesting to be working in the genre we work in because I almost wonder where did that expectation of perfection come from you know why why is it that this song isn't going to sound very good unless we i have a theory Uh, my theory is that when andy sneep got the first kill switch engage record to mix it was so messed up tracking wise and i i do believe that adam d is really good now but i think that probably back then he was very young andy sneep got this record he had to totally fix up and it got mega popular and started metalcore, basically, like, as we know it. Not, I mean, even though melodic Swedish death metal existed for a long time, as we know it, Killswitch, in my opinion, kind of brought metalcore to the front. And I think Andy, what Andy had to do to kind of recover the record just became the sound. And it's, I feel like from that record on to this day, that's where it comes from. Yeah, because I could tell you my approach towards, you know, if I was, if I was asked to produce a Converge record, I absolutely would not do it the way that I do records on the norm. You know, I would do it in the way that the listener sort of expects, you know, trying not to make it too stale, but to keep it within the realm of, of what the listener or the fan expects the band to sound like, you know, you don't want to come in and just... When you guys are mixing records, do you feel like you are mixing them for the band's tastes, for the, the <laughs> label's tastes, for their fans' tastes, <laughs> that, for your no, own that taste? Depends. depends on the <laughs> format, I would say. If I'm mixing for radio, it's for the program director and the manager and the A&R guy. If it's... Uh, like a local band, it's for the band, or if it's a local band that's trying to get signed, it's for the the standard. You know, those are it. It just depends on the context, but unfortunately, yeah. it's never usually just selfishly for the band. I mean, I just went through that with a band. We made a record the band loves, and the label wanted them to be a different genre, but didn't communicate that until after the thing and turned on the record, and the band is just like you're dumb. This is not what we want to be or play. This is not what we want to sound like. And the label's like, too bad. We have your money. Ha. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of times I'm I'm hired because like a band wants, hey, you do that Kurt Ballou thing really good. So do the Kurt Ballou thing on our record. Or like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> if... Do you find yourself struggling to even know what that is? Or or do you, are you in touch with it to the point where you're like, oh, okay, I get what you're going for? Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, I, I try to pick projects that I think that I will do well on. Um, and if I don't think that I'll do well on a project, then I'll try to steer someone elsewhere. Because um, I, I do I, get people coming in saying, you know, can we get the Joey Sturgis thing? And for the most part, I kind of get what they mean. But then, like, we'll get halfway into the record and we'll be sending songs around. And, and then it's like, <laughs> well, this isn't really what we wanted. And I'm like, well... This is my interpretation of of your idea of 
<laughs> of what I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I guess weird. what I want is like to t- try to help a band identify w- what they are. And even if they're not able to articulate it, um, I think that they still, I still try to treat everyone like they have valid opinions and that their, their voice should be heard and that they, you know, they know what they want, even if they're not able to articulate it. And try, I Absolutely. try to help them. You know, it's, it's obviously it's impossible to not put your own imprint on it. It's still filtering through your ears. I mean, I've, you know, made records with bands of lots of different genres and subgenres. And, you know, there may, there may be some common sonic threads in them just because it's filtering through my ears. But I, I really do try to be malleable to the to the project. So let me ask you something on the topic of being malleable and um, RE guitar tone, which is say you get a band and they have their own preconceived notion of what the tone should be um, and you don't think that their preconceived notion matches the reality of what they're actually looking for. Do you have any go-to pieces of guitar gear that you'll impose or would you try to hear them out first? Um, How do you approach that? Like anything I do in my studio, I'm always cons- I'm always like I try to keep the band's budget in mind. So I will scale how much I intervene based on how much time they have. Um, I mean, there's I I do records in two days sometimes, and I do records in a month sometimes. So you know, based on how long they're there, I'll I'll interject more or less. But uh, yeah, I mean, I always do try to. So do you interject less? If they have more time, or the other way around, because oh yeah, I, I if you have more, if you have more time, you could experiment with their gear more. Versus if you have less time, you can go with your go-to. But I can see how you could see it the complete opposite way, which is if you have less time and they come in, you want to get what they've got and you, be done because you don't have time to go into it further. Yeah. I think in the in the sort of the more time scenario, if if I'm not feeling what they're doing, but they are feeling it, I'll try to like do both, whether that's like tracking multiple amps simultaneously, like one that they like and one that I like, or whether that's like, you know, track everything with one rig and then track it all again with another rig or something like that you know sometimes i will do that in situations with more time like the band uh, beast milk that i recorded a couple of years ago they were feeling a certain guitar sound when we were tracking and then uh, but i had some other ideas and in the end i think like the rhythm guitars are maybe comprised of like six or seven different amps and we're kind of like toggling between them based on the riff so yeah with like with more time i, I will do that but yeah, I think it's just kind of like trying to establish what a band is into, and it's also trying to be aware, or try to be self-aware that I don't get what they're trying to do, and sometimes that means that what they're trying to do sucks. Other times it means that <laughs> I just don't get it. Like, um, right? You know, there's 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 been bands where I've recorded where like it took me a little while to recalibrate my ears to understand what they were doing okay a band like torch you know they're like you know people call them stoner pop right because it's it's sort of like 
the aesthetic is kind of the stoner doom aesthetic a little bit. I mean, they have their own thing, but um, there's a little bit of that sort of stoner doom aesthetic, but everything's in major keys. So it's like weird because, you know, you'd expect everything to be in minor keys, but they just, you know, flip it over and, and make it all major and happy even though it's these like punishing fuzzy doomy guitar tones so it's like it t- i gotta hear this <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah if you haven't heard torch they're they're awesome i've i've worked on their last few records i recorded and mixed meanderthal and then jonathan the bass player who's a really good recordist he uh he had done their previous record as well as the ep that followed that and then the last two albums he tracked and i mixed and um and they're they're a great band but uh, but yeah, it's all just like major keys. Or actually, one of the more, one of my most recent projects, Four Year Strong, their stuff is mostly major keys too. And it's like, but that's kind of the only thing that's different about them for me versus the kind of stuff that I'm more known for. So it just requires a little bit of like ear calibration. I think guitar sounds are are no exception to that. Sometimes like you're just not feeling a guitar sound because you haven't figured out how it fits in context yet. Other times you're not feeling a guitar sound because it sucks and there's just like a like a stubborn opinionated guitar player who you know needs to be put in their place so you know in situations like that you know sometimes i'll indulge them or sometimes like i'll start polling other people in the room like you know their bandmates try to figure out who like their bandmate is that they respect and see um how that person feels about the tone and i mean i try i try to make it so it's not like Kurt, the um, you know the dictator telling you that your sound sucks and that you have to yeah. change. I try to I try to like sort of generate consensus amongst everybody in the room. Is this or what is it about this that we like? Is there anything about it we don't like? And maybe I can suggest some other options that'll work. So in, in like the average project for me, which is usually like ten days to to two weeks, there's usually enough time for me to. You know, educate myself about the band, listen to their previous recorded output, and kind of talk to them a little bit about it, about what they liked about it and then what they didn't like about it, and then listen to the rig that they're used to playing out of, and then also then being able to say like, yeah, I'm not sure about this, or I like it, but let's you know let's try a few other options, and then I'll I've got you know probably 30 guitar amps in my studio, so I'll pull out a whole maybe five or six that I think might be likely replacements or supplements for the live tone, and as well as different cabinets and pedals and stuff, and then we'll kind of you know mess around for three or four hours and just see if there's anything I have in the studio that gets them closer to where they think they want to be what i really don't like is when people come in thinking that because they like some records that i've made and that i've been making records longer than they have that i know better than them like i mean i I feel like everybody's opinion is is valid you know regardless of their ability to articulate it um you know unfortunately like the people that can articulate opinions the best usually get their way and they might not actually be the best person to be deciding the direction for <laughs> They're things. They're just really good yeah. at articulating. Yeah. That. So I, you know, I really do try to listen to everybody and and try to pull opinions out of people who aren't voicing them. That's great. Yeah. That's like a really good um, point to kind of uh, accent um, for upcoming people who want to be better at producing and be a better producer is, is the psychology behind it. You know, sometimes there are people who 
know exactly what's right for the song, but they're shy or they don't speak up or they can't articulate their ideas. And so you do have to kind of go in and pull that out of them. So that's a good, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of the most talented people on earth aren't known for their social skills or communication skills. Very true. So that, that sounds to me like very, very sound advice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's like the guy you got to catch on the bathroom break and like, so what do you think? And then they'll tell you when the band isn't around, then you got to go and bat for them when you get down with the band. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some bands too, where I've had to just be a shoulder to cry on for each individual member independent (laughs) of, of each other in order to, but you know, building, building trust with a band that you're working with is very important. And, um, if you have to be their bartender for a little while, um, then, then that's what you got to do in order to make them, you know, because if they because if they trust you, they're they're more likely to articulate what they want, and they're also more likely to be excited about the record, and then, you know, they'll they'll perform better, and just everything will be, a, not only a better product, but a, a more enjoyable experience. Yeah. I feel like trust is one of the biggest obstacles that upcoming producers have to overcome with their clients. I hear from people all the time who tell me that. They get clients, but their clients don't want to try their ideas. They don't want to check out their gear choices. They don't want to do anything that the engineer says. And my opinion is it's because they don't they don't trust you yet because you don't you a don't have the body of work, but b you may not have taken the steps to win the band over. That's true. And and another thing that I think works against people in those situations often is that the band has spent you know six months a year two years whatever writing these songs and then the producer gets to come in at the you know at the 11th hour with the benefit of never having heard them before and and you know hear them with with objectivity and without without having put two years worth of of time and effort into those songs and they can just you know immediately tear them down and say you know like oh you know the verse is way too long on that or you don't need three bridges in that song or whatever and the band are just going to be kind of butthurt because you know they've been working they've been slaving away on these songs for two years and they've developed a lot of ownership over these songs um and then also um you know in a lot of cases the 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 types of bands I record the singer is not particularly involved in arranging the songs so they write all of their lyrics based on whatever arrangement the band has come up with so if the producer comes in you know in the in the midst of like the 10 day or 14 day session and says hey you know your song doesn't need three bridges and the singer's just going to go oh but what about all the lyrics I wrote? Now the song doesn't make any sense. Like, and so you you kind of can't make changes. So I think that if you can find a producer and get them involved with your songwriting early on, so that you don't develop too much ownership over what you've written before it feels really set in stone, then you'll you'll be better able to optimize the songs before entering the studio. If you can, you know, find a producer who's willing to work with you in the songwriting phase long before you're in the studio phase. I try to do that with bands when they are into it for the exact same reasons that you just said, all those reasons, and especially the vocals. I I want a vocalist to come in as prepared as they're comfortable to be but at the same time i don't like i don't like what happens when you change everything on them and they 
are unhappy. I don't like the vibe. I, yeah. You know, you got to keep vocalists happy. So how can they even get behind their own yeah, song? Exactly. You know? But you know, like riffs, riffs are compartmentalized, you know, like you do riff a for, you know, four reps and then riff B for four reps or whatever. But, but vocals, that's, that should be a cohesive narrative that goes throughout the entire yes. song. And if you rearrange the song, then now all of a sudden, like if the verse is now the chorus and, and whatever, like, now the song doesn't read properly, so the singer needs to completely redo, you know, the entire song. So you, you really want to like have a pretty good arrangement before, <laughs> you know, before you set the singer loose writing lyrics. Absolutely, Joey. Do you get in early, early on on songwriting stuff? It depends. Um, you know, I'm never. It seems like no project is yeah, ever the same thing twice. <laughs> but there are some bands that have definitely said like, hey. You know, we wrote these songs. We have like 12 or 15 songs that we wrote, but we really want to just come in and, and like kind of either write new songs with you or, or take these songs and, and get your spin on them. And in those scenarios, I'm like, you know, if that's what I'm being hired to do, then absolutely I'm going to come in and, and do that. So I, I actually love to do that more than than anything else. Like I would rather be the person who is just creative and coming up with cool ideas and, and cool parts and helping arrange the song and structure everything uh, rather than making guitars quantized or, you know, recording vocal takes or like any of that stuff. I, I prefer to just be more creative. That makes sense. So Kurt, do you I mind agree. if we ask you some questions about guitar from the audience? Cause we have quite a few questions yeah, sure. submitted. So, and, uh, you know, this is all through your filter. However you use this stuff uh, is what we want to hear because we have a few different people coming on uh, to talk about guitars this month, and we kind of just want to get everyone's unique take. So, like, if there's a technique that you just don't use at all, then feel free to just say you don't use it. Or whatever, but so Kevin George is asking with surgical EQ, what's its usage or abuse, and what are some of the finer points of using it on guitars with you? Well, for me, I know you guys have talked about in in previous podcasts about low passing guitars and and things like that. I don't typically do that, but I will often, especially on an amp that is recorded with the master not cranked um I'll, I'll find that a lot of guitar tones are a bit too sizzly for my taste so i'll go in with like a notch filter and kind of scroll around somewhere in the 10k to 11k range and find like the the real kind of stuff and get rid of that and that's like the main unless there's like a problem i'm hearing somewhere you know that that's like the main surgical thing that i'll do i do like i generally use like two or three EQs on a guitar um, for different things and and um, I, I'm, I'm mixing out of the box for most things but in the box I'll usually have like the FabFilter Pro Q2 on guitar and so and there's like the sort of built in spectro spectrograph on that thing which is nice because you can see if there's like certain frequencies that are really pokey or there's some holes somewhere so sometimes like I'll try to do a couple little you know, boosts and cuts and on that thing to to level things out if I'm hearing something weird. But yeah, gen generally it's just like the 10 or 11k notch filter. So um, I'm gonna 
paraphrase a question because I I know that this was asked later, but um, we've got about thirty questions that we're not going to be able to get to. So I'll just go. Oh, I'll wow. just okay. ask. Um, so if you are removing nasty, painful, high end frequencies, how do you counter so that the tone doesn't become dull? So basically, how do you keep the guitars out in front and bright and present and awesome? Um, yet still notch things out without killing the tone. Just make them louder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess that that's that's why I probably use in, like notch filters instead of um, instead of low pass filters when it comes to like removing annoying sizzly stuff or um, or like harsh upper mid range because um, I feel like leaving in some of that ultrasonic stuff adds a sense of three dimensionality to it is and I also will room mic guitars for a lot of things like a stereo room mic on guitars so there's um, there's a bit of just sort of natural air about the guitar that makes it feel real uh, and then you know it just really kind of depends too on what's going on with everything else in the mix you know I'll, I'll obviously I listen but like I'll look at like where am I boosting and cutting drums where am I boosting and cutting bass and then I'll try to do whatever boosting and cutting on guitar that I'm doing in different places than I do with the bass and the drums and you know I, I, I try not to build have things build up in too many different frequencies so I'll, I'll use like you know different mics and different mic pre's and all that stuff for different instruments so that there's not that kind of like natural build up that happens when you use the same gear on everything yeah that that makes perfect sense uh, Matthew Burrell was asking how you like to EQ the guitars to make room for vocals but I feel like you just kind of answered that that starts at the source of making the right gear choices so that you already start to avoid some of the overlapping frequencies but is there more to it than that yeah um i mean it's just it's it's always different it depends on the singer's voice but um and the and the guitar player's sound and what kind of presence they have in the mix of course um but yeah i, I don't have like a default go-to like always use this type of eq or this mic or or this this whatever but I'll, you know when i'm thinking about carving out space for things i'm not just thinking about them in terms of like frequencies but i'm thinking about them in terms of panning space so you know one of the main things to get vocals and guitars away from each other is panning and even if there's like a guitar overdub that's happening at the same time as a vocal I'll, you know maybe i'll pan out the overdub 50 percent or something like that just to like get it away from the vocal or maybe the vocals panned away from it or you know always thinking you know there's this sort of this frequency space there's panning space um and then there's also sort of like effect space like how how deep are the are the reverbs are you using in order to like place things within your stereo field and i think the the the, the low mid content of each instrument has a lot to do with sort of how how in front or behind the speakers it feels so i'll i'll use all those techniques to kind of find not only how how they interact well not not just carve out space for each for each element of the mix but also like carve out where i want to place them in the sound field and there's a here's another question that i remember but i'm going to have to paraphrase speaking of the low mids do you have any techniques that you use to bring them out on the guitars without going too flubby or muddy yeah i mean there's lots of different 
saturation plugins out there that can do that kind of stuff. I mean, sometimes sometimes it is just EQ. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's compression. Uh, you know, I, I when I'm getting a guitar sound out in the room, I spend a lot of time on the master volume knob and trying to dial in the right position for the master where and how how it interacts with the cabinet so that there's you know the right balance of of clarity and and body um and sizzle reduction based you know so like i uh you know it's generally i generally record guitars pretty loud but not fully cranked so you kind of already have it kind of sounding right coming in or ho- hopefully, yeah. I mean, I do my best. I ch- I try to. I do. I do have a tendency to make stuff a little bit too dark and and honky on the way in, and so I find myself like cutting low mids and and brightening them when I mix a lot of the time. But I guess I'd rather have a little bit more of that stuff there than to have to try to create it out of nothing. Here, here's a question touching on getting stuff right from the beginning which is do you have any sort of guitar checklist or mental checklist or just anything that you make sure that you're going to do to the guitars or to the amps or whatever before you start recording like do you have a like you know set rules yeah for sure i mean again this is sort of scaled based on how long the band is in the studio because i mean there's times where i'm I very much employ a fuck it attitude, but um, what I like to do, as I mentioned earlier, is you know spend time with the guitarist and you know listening to their previous output and their current rig and stuff and see how that sounds and then you know make suggestions and uh, maybe swap out some pedals or a cabinet or a head or a guitar or whatever just to to try to kind of dial in what's the right sound for the songs but then once that's kind of determined as to what gear we're going to be using then there's a bit of optimization that needs to happen like you know i got to make sure all the cables are good um make sure there's not any like noisy power supplies sometimes we'll just run on just batteries instead of um instead of power supplies for the pedals i'll almost always kind of pick up the guitar the person's gonna play and make sure that that's the guitar is feeling good and set up well and has the appropriate gauge strings on it and so forth and so on. Like, uh, everybody always, like, takes their guitar into the shop to be set up before they come record with me, and probably 75% of the people who do guitar setups don't really do guitar setups. Yeah. They just kind of polish them and change the strings. So I think it's pretty important to, like, learn about you know learn how to intonate a guitar learn how to identify worn frets learn how to identify a nut that's too high or too low and try to find for yourself a good local guitar tech whose work you trust or learn how to do that stuff for yourself so that you can make sure that the guitar that you're going to be recording with is capable of being played in tune you know like i I did this this record i mean i'm sure you guys know how like especially with drop tune stuff sometimes you have to like intentionally detune the low strings in order to get it to sound in tune just because like the wobble and all that so i was recording this band recently and the bass was like we had the open i think it was a c i think it was tuned to c we had the open c sounding great we had this the 12th fret see you know sounding totally fine but everything like 
in the middle of the neck was sounding terrible, especially like from like the first to the fifth fret. Like we just couldn't get any of those notes to sound right. And come to find out this guy just had a super tall nut on his bass. So like there was just like a lot of deflection on the string just going from open to first fret. You know, like ideally the nut shouldn't really be much taller than the difference. You know, the difference between open and first fret really shouldn't be much different than the difference between like fretting the first fret and then hammering on to the second fret. Um, yeah. Intonate, you know, in, for ideal intonation. So being able to identify those kind of problems on guitar and either fix them yourself or... Um, or get a guitar tech to to um, to fix them is good. You know, I like I did a record recently where I had to change everybody's pickups before we even started tracking. Um, I mean, I've had to level frets. You know, intonation truss rod adjustments are very common. Replacing jacks is very common. I just want to add that this is the kind of stuff that uh, if you just take it to Guitar Center, drop it off, and pick it up, the guy probably will not know that this is a problem. I try to work with the same guy every time and he comes to the studio and then after he sets up the guitars, we'll play through it with him right there and make sure that, yeah, all the frets are working. Everything is, everything is good to go. And I have noticed that, yeah, about 70% of the time when they come back from a shop, they're not done right or not done all the way. Yeah. The High on Fire record that I just did, uh, it just came out. There were days where the guitar tech his name's Gabe Viani. He's really good. He came to the studio like sometimes four times a day. Yeah. <laughs> there was so much <laughs> stuff for him to do. Like Matt just like caves in. He is, well, plays Les Pauls and he's got two pneumatic bridges and just caves in the bridges constantly. Um, wow. So like the center strings will just be buzzing like crazy because the, the bridge doesn't have, uh, it's like arced in the wrong direction. Like opposite the direction that the... Um, the fretboards arced. Yeah. That, wow. That doesn't surprise me at all because with my guy, I've had him come to the studio four times a day before as well. And I, I know that that's kind of a, a regular thing for him when there's a, you know, when there's a band around that warrants warrants that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that's totally normal for me. But I'm sure a lot of people listening here probably are not recording in situations where they can afford to have, you know, to pay a guitar tech to come by the studio four times a day. Of course not. That's why they um, should learn so, how to do it. You know, yeah, spend a bunch of time on YouTube, like learning about guitar setups and just buy yourself a crappy guitar at Walmart or something, um, or from a flea market and rip out the frets, replace the frets or level the frets. Do, you know, just have a practice guitar that you can beat up and learn how to do this stuff because it's like a super important skill. I find that, Lots of people's guitar tone is messed up before it even gets to the amp. I, I try to tell yeah. people this all the time, but I feel like these these early steps in the guitar tone process are crucial because if that stuff is messed up, good luck with the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, every step is crucial. Do you guys find that like you have a tough time work like when you're when you're mixing records that people recorded at home that there's a a lot of times that stuff gets overlooked and there's a whole there's a whole period of like forensic audio that you have to go through just to build up the mix to the point where you're ready to start Uh, absolutely that's why i hammer that's why i hammer this stuff home because i feel like the the every you're right every step is crucial but i feel like people are more inclined to spend more time on the later steps and just kind of 
gloss over the early ones because the later steps are sexier, like actually dialing tones. Or they're just excited to get yeah. started. And, um, you know, and then if, later in the process, they have to fix it. Earlier in the process, they can just dive in and ignore it. Yeah, that forensic audio thing on DIs, I sometimes have to spend a long time. Have you ever had to send a... We'll tell a band that hired you to mix that the DI is just not workable. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's only been a couple times where I've had only a DI to work with. Usually, like uh, they have at least some sort of reference amp tone along with it. So sometimes I'll just go to that. There's been very few times where I've just completely rejected something or told somebody to re-record something. But there have been a few times where I've asked not to be credited. How does that oh. conversation go? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting, too. I mean, and maybe you guys have experienced this, too, but I feel like every once in a while, somebody hires me to get my name on their record more than that they like what my work sounds like. I, I remember there was there was one record that I worked on years ago where, you know, the band name was this, like, kind of scratchy logo down at the bottom of the cover, and then there was a big sticker on the top of the cover that said, you know, mixed by Kurt Ballou. But the, I think the record was like 13 songs long, and I only mixed four out of those 13, and yet, you know, my <laughs> name was like bigger and more legible than the name of the band on the front That's cover. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, that kind of stuff is is a bit off-putting to me. You know, like, I, I like to think people are hiring me because they like, they like my work and not just because it's a marketing tool. Yeah. The, I, I find that people sometimes do go to studios for the wrong reasons. Have you ever been hired to get somebody else's sound? Um, I don't. No, I, I, I've never really been asked to mimic anything other than something that See, I. That's did. pretty cool. I've, I've been, I've definitely been hired to mimic other people's sounds, and that's always weird. It's like, why don't you just go to them? Oh my yeah. god, I hate that so much. Well, I, I, I got a buddy who does, um, he does audio for American Idol. And yeah, I know other people. I'm sure you guys know people that have done like karaoke stuff, where like your job is to mimic other people's sounds, and I think that it's it's super educational. Like, and I, I think I'd actually probably really enjoy that. Like, to try to sit down and um, you know figure out how somebody recorded something and try to make something sound the same. I think that would be really interesting. I mean, it's not it's not flattering, but it's interesting. It is interesting, but it's very very hard to get somebody else's signature sound. You, you know? know that FabFilter has EQ yep. match, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just EQ match everything, your tracks, your master, that's it. You know what? The, okay, uh, can I tell you an EQ match story? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I was recording um, this band, and we, we, did, um, we did their album in two different basic tracking sessions, separated by about four or five months. And in the end, it was decided that we didn't love the original bass sound and we liked the new bass sound and we wanted to reamp the original bass tracks through the new bass rig. Uh, I did have a DI for the original bass tracks, but it was a sans amp with, you know, some of the EQ engaged. So what I had the bass player do was just play along with one of the old songs with a, with a clean DI. And then I used the clean DI um, just as a temporary guide track to EQ match the Sansamp DI from the original session, and it was like dead nuts. I've done that as well. You know, so if it's the exact, so if it's the exact same perform, or not the exact same performance, but like the same notes and the same rhythm sort of 
side by side with the um, with the new version, it actually works really well. It's when you have like a song that's like in a different key and totally different tracking tones that it's really weird. Yeah, then it but, doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. if it's yeah. the if uh, if it's the same player and the same instrument and all that stuff's the same, then EQ matching is a total godsend. Yeah. EQ match is actually just like as an educational tool kind of interesting like I, it's not that often that I would use it in a mix but like to to like throw something on and and just see like oh what would I have to do in order to make my guitar sound like that guitar or whatever and to see what fab filter will tell you to do is is always kind of an interesting exercise yeah i i completely agree with you there um i, I feel like Actually using some, if you use too much EQ matching, I feel like your mix will start to get weird. But I feel like if you use it to get information, um, that's the yeah. ideal way, at least for me. You do have to learn how to hear that stuff. It's pretty important Absolutely. if you want to actually be good at this, because part of being good is being quick and being able to get results and commit. And if you just rely on an EQ match, you're never going to learn the ear skills necessary to be a good mixer, for example. I think it can help you quantify what it is that you're hearing so that, you know, next time you know, like, oh, yeah, my guitars always have too much, too much 3.2K or whatever. So it, it just, it'll help you in the future. Well, every guitar has too much 3.2K. <laughs> How do you feel about 2.7? No problem. <laughs> but but okay. I've, on a, I've been on a fuck 2K recently. I don't know why. Okay. Every three months I have like a different frequency area that I'm really sensitive to that for whatever reason is irritating me and all my guitar and like cymbal tones. And the last two or three months, it's been like the two to low three Ks. It's really weird. Okay, it just keeps changing. <laughs> no, I, I I'm I used to be really diehard uh, two point seven boosting on a, on massive passive on guitar, and now I've like now I'm like down to one point eight or sometimes up to like three point three or three point nine. It just it just depends, but yeah, like the, those are. Those are like nice, nice brighteners. Um, yeah, I love the massive passive on guitar. I think it's a great EQ. Yeah, I mean, you kind of gotta like, you gotta learn it. It's not like other EQs where you can just grab it and start tweaking the massive. I think you gotta spend some time with it, learning what it does. Yeah, like any analog piece, you know, it's got a tone and a certain curve, and there's a, you know, you can't just like pick it up and turn a knob. You have to kind of learn it yeah. and try it out on a bunch of different stuff and yeah, figure especially out what the it does. Shelving, the, yeah. like the shell, the shelving, like sort of bandwidth controls yeah totally totally so agree. here's a question from jeremy dove okay um do you have a cab miking do and don't list so in your hmm. head basically obviously i doubt you have one written down i've done some weird stuff i remember uh there's been times where people have come in with cabs with ports and have asked me to like mic inside the port <laughs> and uh how did that sound um, like a wind tunnel but it was interesting i mean the guy was playing out of like a solid state crate amp too so it was, you know it was distinctive it depends on i guess it depends on if you're going for distinctive or if you're going for like classic like i i i very rarely mic the back of a cab or like the back of an open back cab but some people love doing it um it all comes down to time you know if, if it's got to be quick then i'm just going to go right for the usual suspects you know like the the uh the 57, the 121, the 421, that kind of stuff, and edge of the dust cone, and 
into probably like a transformer based mic preamp either a neve clone or a day king or a chandler or you know something api something like that and then if i have a little bit more time to experiment then then i'll start going a little bit deeper into the mic locker or maybe you know start recording two or three amps simultaneously maybe even some di some like some affected di's like distortion pedals right into the board that kind of stuff do you sum the multiple mics on the way in or do you sort that stuff out later i do both typically i will sum an amp on the way in like so if i'm recording out of like three amps and i have multiple mics per amp i'll sum the mics on each amp and then I'll keep each amp on its own track. That that makes sense. So on bass, I'll I'll tend to keep the mics separate, but on guitar, not usually. Rim, like rim mics, I'll I'll keep separate as well. And uh, so another question I remember is, how do you decide when you're gonna blend an amp, and do you have any you know tricks for getting them to to work well together? Because I guess blending amps can sometimes be a a terrible sounding thing or a great sounding thing yeah well one of the ways like one of the tricks in order to get amps to blend together better is um well i guess but let's back up a step like why why are you blending amps so what are the what are the reasons to blend amps in an ideal world the reason to blend amps is because you're not getting something from one amp that you like in another and vice versa so together they theoretically make a great tone I think what happens a lot of times, unfortunately, is bands come into my studio and they see a bunch of like cool amps and they're like, dude, I want to use the orange, but I want to use the Marshall. Oh, and I want to use the Ampeg too. Let's just, just let's use them all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in that case, you know, like sometimes I'll indulge and just not use everything in the mix or sometimes I'll try to find a way to use everything in the mix. And, and I'm super guilty of doing this for my own band as well. But yeah, so I, ideally it's like, oh yeah, I got this amp, but it's a bit lacking in saturation or it's a bit lacking in depth or something. So like I'll pull out this other amp and then, you know, together they're awesome. So you get them sounding awesome in the room. And then the the trick, then then it's really all about the, the phase relationship between the amps and getting that totally dialed in. And for that, you know, I'll use a mix of, you know, adjusting mic position as well as like all pass filtering with an IBP, like a, the Little Labs IBP. And then finally, just, you know, micro sample based delays to really get things lined up properly. Um, but one of, the, one of the ways that you can make the phase relationship stuff less important is if, you know, let's say, let's say you have two amps and like one's the bright amp, one's the dark amp, rather than like putting a dark mic on the bright amp and a bright mic on the dark amp to bring them closer together, you choose a bright mic for the bright amp and a dark mic for the dark amp to actually even to make the differences between the two amps even greater. And then you'll have less less of um, a phase relationship between them. And it's almost like you're in like a bi-amp type territory where this is kind of like a crossover between, you know, the bright amp and the dark amp. And you're able to kind of um, balance them independently of each other without there being a super destructive phase relationship. So basically the closer the tones are together, the more the phase relationship is a major factor correct makes sense so actually finn uh finn from creative live was asking finn mckinty um so yeah hello finn Finn. um (laughs) 
So he wants to know more about tracking, so you need to do minimal editing. Uh, I'll just read his question. Uh, tracking, so you need to do minimal editing, which is maybe just how to play guitar, in quotation marks, but the idea of how to get sick tones without recording one note at a time. I guess you would be the person to ask about this. Well, I guess hopefully you have a sick guitar player. Right? <laughs> um. <laughs> Where do we find one of those? Um, well, you know, I think... Um, it's not going to directly answer his question, but one of the ways that you can make people think that you're better at recording is to record really good players. Because really good players just tend to sound good, and really bad players tend to sound bad, even out of the same gear. So um, if you can try to <laughs> avoid recording bands that suck, people will think you're really good. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's one technique. Uh, you just have to be I willing try to use that one not a work a lot. Let me just uh, <laughs> chime in. I I think there's a misconception about Ross Robinson. I I don't want to say anything bad about him because I mean the guy's a freaking genius and look what he's done to music, you know. But I know some people who have worked with him and and said like, yeah, he's a complete idiot. He has no clue what's going on in terms of engineering. He's just such a creative mind and so fired up about like music and the meaning behind it and like getting performances to where they need to be that it doesn't matter that he doesn't understand engineering like he's getting it right before it even enters the air you know what i'm saying wait who so is this you, I mi sorry i missed uh who you were talking about ross robinson oh, I, 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 ross oh, yeah okay so like he, yeah he gets it right before it even gets into the air and so as a result of that, it ends up sounding great, even if even if he has no clue what's going on engineering-wise. And that's yeah. not to say that he's a complete engineering idiot. I'm sure he understands the basics, but I, I know some people that worked with him and said that they, they actually understood more about the recording process than he did, but it didn't matter because he just gets good results you yeah, know, with his mind. That totally makes sense. But yeah, but I mean, in terms of like, what can you do? Just given your your situation, where you, you know you're not like choosing the player, I think it's just a matter of making the players comfortable. Um, you know, making sure they're well rehearsed, and also making sure they've got a comfortable chair, and that their instrument feels good to play, and that they like the sound that they're monitoring, and that they're you know excited to play, and that you know they can hear everything well, and the song was tracked at the right tempo, and you know all that kind of stuff that just you know, lets people play their best. And if they need, like, you know, do they have, you know, did they get to go to the juice bar that morning? And do they have the right <laughs> amount of coffee? And have they pooped yet? And, you know, all, all the different, like, little psychological factors, just, you know, making sure someone's ready to perform. You don't want to, like, especially singers, but guitar players, too, you don't want to just, like, throw them to the wolves. You want to make sure that they're ready to do their job um, and so that you get the best performance out of them. Sometimes there are people who are the driving creative force of a band, but they're also the worst player in the band. That's me. <laughs> and that's that's always interesting, yeah. <laughs> because then <laughs> you have to... Um, like, there's a, there's a band I've worked with a few times that um, that I won't, I won't name, where the band leader and, and primary songwriter is arguably the worst guitar player in the band. Um and he knows it though, so he and he doesn't have an ego about it. So he like delegates 
this the the recording to the other players and then he'll you know he'll, if it's something that he really has a certain feel for he'll play it but um uh i actually even played a lot of guitar on their records because i was able to like you know play it with the precision that that he wanted um and i think letting as a as a guitar player um or as any musician if you can let go of your ego if if okay if the end product is the most important thing in your recording process and you can let go of your ego and let somebody else play it or let you know al's assistant program it or you know whatever it happens to be then that'll make for the best end product and if that's not what's the most important to you if it's what if what is most important to you that you play on your own record and that you make something that you're proud of, then just make sure you show up prepared. Yeah, that's, I feel like 80% of these types of problems would be solved by people showing up prepared. Because honestly, the last thing I want to do is start playing guitar on their record and have to learn their riffs and then reprogram the drums and do all that stuff. That's, I would rather that they just come in prepared and we can do it for real. But well, a lot of people don't know they're not prepared. That's that's the problem. Isn't that the truth? That's what's so awesome about home recording. Now that like so many bands have the capability of doing a bit of recording on their own, they can start to become aware of what their own shortcomings as players are. I mean, I'm sure you guys have all been in a situation where like you want to record a drummer on a click, but they've never played to a click before. um, And everything just kind of falls apart. But if they had done some of their own recordings and, you know, kind of you know practiced not just practice how to play the songs but practice how to record the songs then everything will turn out better absolutely well there is a skill as well to knowing how to be recorded uh, as a musician yeah and i think that it's totally separate from knowing how to perform or knowing how to play yeah there's like a there's a when you see a band live, there's a visual excitement that will lead your ear to hear certain things that you can just never reproduce on a record. You know, like when you see the drummer, like their arms are flying all over the place and they're, you know, it looks awesome. and It's like super exciting live. But in a recorded sense, if the snare drum is being played eight times as loud in the slow part as it is during the blast beat, it's just like it's a nightmare for the engineer. <laughs> Hey, that stick twirl, though, that adds tone to the air of the room. It excites the air, you know? There's a band I know that insisted on, like, miking up a middle finger and just putting that on the track. Oh, I love that. What mic did you use and what pre? That's the real question. I didn't didn't record them. Did you compress it? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> Got to put a distressor on that middle yeah, well, finger. You, L1 for sure. L1 on the middle finger. So here, here's a question that I actually made somebody rephrase because I thought I understood the question, but I realized I didn't. And it turned out to be a pretty good question. So I'm going to read you the rephrased version. Let's see if it makes any sense. So okay, it's from Jake Yablonowski. I hope I pronounced that right. There are a lot of things that have to happen to make a guitar tone fit in the mix. Out of all the things that need to be done, like EQ or multiband or compression, just to name some possibilities, some things are easier to learn than others, and some techniques are more important. My question is, what technique or process took you guys the most time to get good at? For example, maybe it took Joel years of experience and practice to realize that doing X improved his mixing abilities 
X being whatever he answers. I hope that clarifies. So yeah, so does that question make sense? Yeah, but um, yeah, it's a tough, tough one to answer. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have an answer. I think it's like I, I just kind of take a holistic approach to all this stuff where I feel like I'm just always learning about everything. Lately, for me, I've, I think I've been making great strides with learning about pedals and been like expanding my sort of expanding my pedal collection and, and understanding how a pedal is not just a sound in and of itself but a pedal is sort of a way to optimize the interface between a guitar and an amp prior to that i think i was learning a lot about guitar pickups um, i I've, i bought a guitar that had an emg in it when i was like 17 and i basically played nothing but emg 85s um, for like 20 years and then i started saying like hey, you know, maybe there's some other pickups out there. Maybe I should learn about them. <laughs> and um, I, I build guitars, too, So like, and some of them for customers, some of them for myself. Um, so as I've, especially as I've been building guitars, um, you know, people ask me for, like, different pickups. So it's been a great opportunity for me to, like, learn, like, oh, okay, here's what, like, the different bare-knuckle models sound like, and here's what, like, a JB sounds like, and here's a PAF, and, you know, here's a TV Jones. And, you know, kind of, like, learning, like, not just how do these pickups differ between each other within the same rig but like how does you know how will this pickup cause you to to set your amp differently or how will this pickup you know cause you to like reach for a a certain fuzz pedal as as opposed to a distortion pedal or an overdrive and 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 that kind of stuff and just realizing how sort of like interdependent every choice is all along the way with the whole guitar single chain. And I think it is very much incremental learning. Like you learn a little bit about like setting up an amp and then that changes what you've learned about miking. So then you kind of like have to learn a little bit more about miking and then, you know, and then now that you've, now that you've changed this. Yeah. Now, now like your, your like mix EQ needs are a little bit different. So you learn a little more about that and then, oh, and then now you start mixing records that you didn't record and now you got to like learn, how to handle all these different types of recorded guitars that are coming into your your mix environment and yeah so it's it's just a lot of incremental learning i wish i could give an easy answer but i, I don't really have one yeah but that's an honest just answer keeping yeah but people don't like i don't i never wanted that <laughs> like when i was first starting recording i wanted like you know like i wanted to ask a question and then people tell me like oh yeah just that's, do this that's this i mean there's very there's there are things like that like if you want a swedish death metal sound you get a boss hm2 like it's not totally that simple but that's like you need to do that one yes. step um you know there's some things that are just that cut and dry but most things are not unfortunately i i feel like and i know what you mean that people do want the silver bullet answer but it, people, the people who have helped me the most musically over the years have given me basically the answer that you just gave, which is, A, you have to be really interested in it and never stop learning and, you know, just go for it. And every time you got to take on something new, uh, go for it just like you went for the previous thing you had to learn. And that's really the answer is be willing to take yeah. a few years of your life or more to really figure this stuff out and take an active proactive interest in learning as much as possible about it. Hey, Joel and Joey, do you guys want to chime in on this? Well, I, w- I was just going to say when you're in this profession and when you mess around with recording stuff, you are 
always a student and I feel like there's new things to be learned every day even when you know how everything works somebody comes in with a goofy ass riff or something and you're like wow that's uh that's interesting and I need to learn how to make that sound good (laughs) yeah you know every time there's something happening in my studio that like I don't love like maybe I don't love the band or I'm not getting along with the people or you know or the tones suck or whatever like I, I always just try to I try to think of that as an opportunity to learn. Like, yeah. how can I make this better? Or how can I, like, relinquish control to these people and see how they think about things and what can I learn from them or whatever? Just, you know, I try to treat everything as a learning opportunity. I'll take on to that last question that the listener had asked about what do you think is the most important thing that helped in, like, guitar mixing? And from my own perspective, I think it was really learning how to EQ and hear different frequencies for what they are and how they interact. And that sounds like a really simple statement, but what I'm describing is a process that takes years where you sit there and all of a sudden you're really sensitive to a certain part of the mid-range and you start hearing it in everything and then you can see it with razor focus in your mind and manipulate it. And then all of a sudden that opens up another one and then another one and you... So really learning how to EQ definitely helped me take my guitar game up a lot because there are certain ranges and frequencies and things that I learned to listen for that I know automatically are usually going to get discarded in most situations and other ones where, you know, situations you have to learn how to balance certain things against each other and apply different strategies. So that was a big one for me. It might sound weird, but it's like get you need to get better at listening to music, which I know it's <laughs> it essentially really, the same point. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's like understanding like what 400 Hertz actually sounds like. Um, and how much of so, it you do or don't need and why. Yeah. And, and getting that connection with your gear or your plugins or your tools or your interface or whatever you're using so that you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm hearing this one thing and it's got too much bass. How do I react to that to, to change it so that it has the right amount of bass that I want to hear, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Hey, Joel, when you have um, a frequency that's that's bugging you, do you find that you hear that in all listening environments, other rooms, other speakers? Do you hear that in other people's recordings as well? Or is it just like in your own production environment that it's bugging you? Usually it's per instrument. For example, I'll, I'll equate it to this. This is the best way. Like when I listen to a sound... Maybe it's because I played in a band for 15 years, but I always wore earplugs, so hopefully my ears aren't too damaged. But like when I'm sitting there and I listen to a sound, the first thing that goes into my head, it either sounds fucking awesome or something's wrong with it and I have to get to the bottom of why it doesn't sound right or something's like harsh or irritating. And then I try to get rid of the irritation and reveal the beauty of the tone. Like it sounds too tubby or like too boxy, for example. So I usually go in and try to find something where like something sounds wrong with the sound. If I'm not immediately like, wow, that sounds great to me. And I try to do it. So it's not like I go out and um, hear, you know, for example, 4k and everything. And now I know we joke a lot and we talk a lot, a lot about that, but generally I would say those are more a summation of tendencies that have been built up over years of mixing. Like if there's a couple of frequencies that I hear over and over and over in the guitars that I get to mix that drive me nuts, it's usually in that range. You know, like I said, sometimes that changes, but I try to take everything on a case-by-case basis okay. and just so listen you, to the sound, listen to the song, figure out the big 
picture, then micro it down to a small finite level and get in there and notch out whatever needs to be notched out to make it clearer and more pristine and like just better sounding. Okay. So you really do believe it's within the track and not just like within your listening environment. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm very comfortable with my listening environment. Like I never go into my car and then hear 4k in a certain way versus like on my speakers or versus like on my assistant speakers. It's really just like when we talk about a lot on the podcast, like I said, it's tendencies and it's like an 80, 20 thing. Most of the time it's usually within X for me and the way I hear but it's always on a case-by-case basis. I'll give you an example. I mixed a couple of different songs for a couple of different bands this morning. And, you know, one particular song had a really nasty buildup in the two range that was just pissing me off and I got it off. Then I go to a different band and a different guitar and it's a similar tone. I was using like the same amps and plugin, but it was a completely different thing that was irritating me. So you just got to take it one thing at a time, listen to the sound and figure out what you want to do with it and why. I think it's important yeah. to not not pass judgment on the tone uh, and gear choices before you've heard what, you know, what's actually coming through the speakers. And in context of the yeah, song. Exactly. Because I, I know that there was, you guys are probably a bit young for this, but there was this like, I started playing guitar like right at the end of like the pink Charvel rack mount gear craze. And I guess that's, that's kind of back, but I, you know, I was playing guitar like before <laughs> grunge hit and back then everybody had a BBE sonic maximizer in their rack <laughs> because you know, like they sold amp, it well. <laughs> it just couldn't put out their amp. Couldn't put out enough high end sizzle or enough bottom end rumble. It's like, it's like they wanted to sound like a full band all by themselves, just playing their guitar and then when those band when those guitar players joined bands there was like no space left for the cymbals and no space left for the bass guitar <laughs> and guitar is one the of, only instrument that matters I mean, <laughs> well i mean obviously as a guitar player that's what i think but unfortunately <laughs> vocals are the only thing that matters you know like i mean ask ask like your mom or something she probably couldn't even tell you what instruments are on her favorite song it's like Everything, everything is in support of the vocal. Unfortunately, as a guitar player, I have to admit that. But anyway, Blasphemy. but anyway, um, <laughs> but one, you know, one of the most important things in like my early studio recording experiences was like walking in and seeing these studios with like big collections of combo amps and smaller amps. And you know, I remember talking to an engineer friend of mine saying like, "Yeah, like sometimes just to sound huge, you need something that's really small because like that's the only thing that's going to cut through this." dense mix like you've got like a like a lead guitar thing with a ton of character or something like that you don't want to record it out of like you know like a 5150 and a 6x12 you want to record it out of like a Fender Champ with a fuzz pedal in front of it because that's the only thing that's going to like cut through the wall of guitars that you've already established yeah I've noticed that as well Absolutely. well Kurt just want to thank you so much for coming on here with us and taking the time to talk shop and then answer all those questions yeah no sweat i think what you guys are doing is awesome and i've already learned a lot from listening to your other podcasts so uh oh I that's hope, pretty cool <laughs> i hope that this uh helps helps other people as well absolutely. absolutely well you've been extremely requested and our listening base loves your work so Sweet. it's yes. really cool to have you come on and just pick your brain a little bit yeah, we'll take it easy and thanks again dude anytime the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by creative live the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting engineering mixing and mastering go to creativelive.com audio to start learning now
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premium manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. Go to www.ernieball.com to learn more. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.